Welcome to the P4C Podcast. We are excited to reshare with you the last 13 years of teaching through God's Word at Passion for Christ Summit. Each week, the P4C Podcast delivers rich truths for your life, and we know you will be blessed. Our current series is from P4C 2021, Scripture, the Ultimate Authority. We now join our speaker for the conclusion of last week's message. We hope you are encouraged and challenged. Only God, through his word, can bind the conscience. Only the word of God can bind the conscience as the absolute authority. Church documents, creeds, councils are summaries and can be helpful at times to learn and understand but only God's word can stand above as final authority. And so you've got now out of that evolved these five solas. Now realize that the Catholics, they do believe that it's salvation by Christ, by faith, and by grace. They believe that. But in the council, when it was documented, the question became, is it the truth of the gospel and tradition? Which is it? Luther would suggest it's only the truth of the gospel. The church, however, said, yeah, it's the text, it's the scripture, it's the gospel and tradition. This was the big argument at the Council of Trent. Was it two sources? Was it two sources? The Bible and tradition or one? The Council of Trent actually convened on multiple occasions and at one of those councils that had convened, they went even a step further affirming what we call the Apocrypha. That's why if you were to look at a Catholic Bible, you'll see all the 66 books that we enjoy plus a good number of other books in addition at the back. That's the Apocrypha. They've codified that and said that all of that is inspired text. Luther and the Reformers, as this whole thing developed, contended, Jesus and the scriptures are the highest authority, not traditions. What were their traditions? They had the veneration of Mary, or what we today would call Mariology, the codification of the sacraments, what we would call ordinances, communion, the cup and the bread. For us, it's an ordinance. For them, it's a sacrament. What's the difference? If you've ever stepped into a Catholic church and watched a, uh, a mass, um, the priest up at the front will have the chalice with the wine and the bread. When he raises that up, and in Latin pronounces a prayer, the wine turns into the blood of Christ. The bread becomes the flesh of Christ. The reformer said, "Mm -mm. you're just crucifying him all over again. We're not gonna have that. So for us, it's a symbol, right? It's memory memorializing an event that occurred on Calvary. For them, it's trans, a, uh, um, 
Thank you. That's it. Where it literally, from their perspective, morphs, if you will, into blood and flesh. So there's your sacraments. Purgatory, of course. Purgatory is somewhere in between here and heaven. And so you're going to spend time in purgatory purifying uh, oneself for eons before you're pure enough to enter into heaven. The treasury of merit, of course, this was a big one. This was one Luther was challenging. In fact, one historian said that if the Pope were to take the entire treasury of merit and empty it into purgatory, it would free everybody that's in there. But of course, it becomes a quasi-political thing within the church. Celibacy, observance of Lent, all of these things, indulgences, the payment of indulgences, all of these were traditions that had ascended into the Catholic Church by that point. The Reformers understood a key element, the power of the Pope. What was it about that? They understood that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when traditions are authoritative, if you've got Christ in the gospel and traditions become authoritative, those traditions will eclipse the glory of God. And that's what was happening within the church. God, Jesus, and the word were completely being eclipsed by tradition and could no longer be seen for what they are. So out of this comes the rally cry of sola scriptura. All things are to be measured by the word. If you're evangelizing a Catholic, and we were talking about that at breakfast this morning, a couple of us, for me, out in the West Coast, and I know it varies, it's interesting how it varies in different geographies and regions um, with the Catholic Church. Some areas, it's still very traditional, hard line. Where we are, what they're being taught is, hey, you know, we got Jesus, and these other churches around, they got Jesus. So we're Christians too. And so now you start to see this this idea morphing of, yeah, we're Christians, and they're Christians, so we're, we're all good. And so now you engage a Catholic, and you start to go down the road of evangelizing, and you want to bring out some of these elements and talk about maybe so exactly, um, where does it talk about the bodily assumption of Mary? Um, we go to scripture, it's not there. Purgatory, I can't find it. All these different things that you hold on to as authoritative, I can't find it in the text. But you see, here's the problem. For them, it doesn't need to be in the text because it's rooted in the tradition of the church and the tradition of the church supersedes the text. And so the fact that it's not in the text and the fact that the text is under the authority of the traditions of the church and the text is interpreted by the traditions of the church, it's in a subordinate position. The reformers said, no, no, no. The text is in an authoritative position. Everything else is subject to the text. For the Christian, it's the word of God that binds the conscience of the believer. For a Catholic, and frankly, for almost every other cult that I can think of, it's their tradition and their works 
and their teaching that binds their conscience. Here's where the real trouble comes. The Roman church, even today, claims a what's called magisterial role in the interpretation of scripture. What is a magisterial role? This, along with every other cult that I can think of, the church, the cult leader figure, has taken authority over the souls of men and women and has taken authority over the interpretation of the text. In the church, you've got, uh, Catholic church, you've got apostolic succession. They would contend Peter was the first pope, and it just succeeds from there to the current day pope, apostolic succession. Infallibility of the pope, the pope is without error, and continued revelation. That's a problem. That's a big problem. Because today, they would hold that the Pope continues to build on new revelation. Mm -mm, Not according to the text. There is no new revelation. The text has once for all been delivered to the saints, complete in a box, done. We're to know this text, read this text, live by this text. There's no more continued revelation. Their creeds, their traditions supersede the text. It's these church councils that stand over the text, judging the text. So in short, the word of God for them is under the church, not in authority over the church. So we would say that the word of God stands in authority over the church and over the souls of men and women. And church leaders are held accountable to the standard, that standard being the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's the key. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Paul writing to young Timothy Young pastor in the second letter, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, I charge you, Timothy, you're the guy, you're the leader, you're the pastor in charge. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because the word stands above all. The word is authoritative in the church. There's nothing else above the word, below the word, or beside the word. The word's the word. That is the ultimate final authority. Not traditions, not creeds, no councils hold authority over the church. And each of us will be held accountable by the Lord, and especially leaders for those that they shepherd. Now, under this issue of authority, we had this secondary issue I mentioned, this problem of private interpretation being a parallel issue here along with sola scriptura. Luther, back at Leipzig, he says, hey, a simple layman armed with scripture is to be believed above a pope or cardinal without it. In other words, the man and the woman that has a Bible 
has a right to come to God, to Scripture, on his or her own, and interpret the Bible on their own. This is huge. At the Council of Trent, this is what was written down. This is the position that the church took at the Council of Trent. No one relying on his own skill shall in matters of faith and of morals pertaining to the edification of Christian doctrine, resting the sacred scripture to his own senses, presume to interpret the said scripture contrary to the sense of the Holy Mother Church, whose it is to judge the true sense and interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. The church holds that right. We will judge a true and correct interpretation. The average person was prohibited from reading and interpreting the Bible on their own. And Luther, to assert that a mere person could interpret the scriptures was an abject slam against the Roman Catholic Church. And I would suggest pretty much every cult that exists today, they're going to maintain an authoritative position on the interpretation of the text. Otherwise, somebody might figure it out and get it right. So the church guards this right of interpretation of the scriptures for the people. Only the scholars and academics were capable of this task, and it still holds today. Now, we would agree that no one has the right to distort the scriptures. The principle of private interpretation does not grant any of us the right to distort, but rather to interpret accurately. This is not a free-for-all. This is not a license for sloppy and bad exegesis of the text. We have no license for that. In fact, we have a higher standard and a higher level of accountability to get it right. And for me, that's probably one of the most severe things in the back of my mind whenever I teach. Because I ultimately have to stand and give account for what I've taught someday in the future. Did I cut it right? No license for sloppy mishandling. There's only one interpretation, one meaning. We can have multiple applications. Have a wonderful friend, came out of seminary. We were talking one day about a particular professor in the class. He said, the first day of class, professor pulls out a text, says, here's your text for the next week. Go forth, study it, and come back next week with 50 applications from that one verse. I want to see a list out of 50 applications. And my friend, at about number 30, he was struggling. Comes back to class the following week, went over a number of things, professor elucidates on proper in, in, in interpretation of that text, the, the Greek and so forth. He says, okay, here's your assignment for next week. I want 50 more applications. <laughs> yeah, but there's only one meaning. Multiple applications, one meaning. Single authorial intent, one meaning. The authors had one meaning. God cannot contradict himself. There can only be one meaning. Again, Paul writing to young Timothy in the second letter in chapter 2 of verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. 
Rather, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of God, not sloppily, not a free-for-all. So when Luther put out this idea of private interpretation, this is what he had in mind. We can interpret the text, but we have an obligation to do it correctly. So Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms says, unless I'm convinced by sacred scripture or evident reason, I will not recant. What's evident reason? Show me that I'm irrational. Show me that I'm irresponsible, that I'm incorrect, that I've mishandled the text. If you can do that, I'll change my position. Why? Because he understood scripture is rational, it's logical, it's reasonable, and it alone can bind the conscience of the believer. So for Rome, interpretation was held to the Holy Mother Church. The text and tradition, tradition trumped the text. But remember, go back to the Mark passage. Jesus and the leaders in tradition, they weren't washing their hands right. They weren't doing the right stuff. Scribes and the Pharisees come along, they developed a ritual based on Leviticus 22 out of the priesthood on this ritual of washing. Imagine for a moment Sundown tonight, Friday, three stars in the sky begins the Jewish Sabbath until three stars in the sky tomorrow night. That's the Jewish Sabbath. Between tonight and tomorrow night, you have over 1,500 Sabbath rules and regulations you have to observe. That's the level of tradition that the scribes and Pharisees elevated it to. Roman Catholic Church can't hold a candle to them. So all this was expanded into this masterful position and system. Today in Judaism, it's called the Talmud, the oral law. The oral law stands over the text. You study three hours of Talmud and you study one hour of text. Three to one. More time in the Talmud, man's writing, man's wisdom, man's thinking instead of the text. Sad. Mark 7, we saw it. Jesus flipped it upside down. Scripture trumps tradition. He condemns them for their showmanship, tradition over truth. And Jesus appeals now to Scripture there in Mark 7, 8, setting the precedent of authority of the word. For Rome, the ultimate authority resided in the church. Martin Luther says, really? By what authority? By what interpretation? If the authority of Christ and the word is at stake and the reformers were right, it was. The Roman church, just like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees before them, would go after anybody or anything that challenged them. That's why Christ had to die. He would not submit to Pharisaic Judaism. And so in Matthew 12, you see the final rejection. We can't reject him on his insubordination. Mm, we'll reject him on the basis of demonic possession. That's what we'll do in Matthew 12. And here, sadly, these people are trapped in a Latin document, unreadable. Whatever they could get their hands on that they could understand, the church would gather and burn. But the scriptures continued to be translated and printed, and the word of God crushed the superstructure of tradition and the church. Luther, when asked years later, how did you do all this? 
He said, you know what? I slept and the word did the work. The word of God is powerful, double-edged and sharper than anything. So today, scripture is still subordinate to the church. It's sad, but that's the case. They claim canonization of the text. They claim it to have been canonized roughly in the 300s. And we therefore formulated the text. Therefore, we have authority over the text. Any simple study of canonization of the text, you'll find out the Bible, New Testament, was pretty much canonized by AD 100. Church fathers understood which books were the right books. So there you have it. The church says, we created it. And the church fathers said, no, we're simply recognizing which books are true and are the true word of God, and we will simply gather those as received text. And those become authoritative. So as the church and the cults place themselves in authority over the text, we instead place ourselves in submission to the text. So in the end, tradition and church do not judge. Rather, we are judged by scripture. So for Luther, these were the big two, authority and private interpretation. Let me close with this. The Reformation put the absolute authority of God's word in its rightful place. Each of you sitting here today, men and women living in the light of God's word does two things. It brings honor to the Reformation and it brings honor to the word of God. And to the degree we live out the word of God and continue to be transformed by that, it brings glory to him and it honors those many, many men that gave up their lives for the development of doctrine so that we can sit here today with these doctrinal understandings and these understandings of the text that allow us to gather, think, and do what we do. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for your many servants, for Martin Luther, for John Hux, for Tyndale. The list just goes on and on and on. As that path of light traveled along and found itself in the Reformers and in the Puritans and in the pilgrims that came over to America later in 1620, that entire path of life and light that, that traversed the Atlantic and brings us to where we are today, all, all beginning with the life of Christ. And we look back and we reflect on his work and his life, both in the way he challenged the superstructure of tradition of its day and challenged the lawyers and those religious hypocritical leaders and called them to account, but they killed him for that. But in the killing of him, as it were preordained, brought redemption to us. We thank you for your spirit, the way it regenerates our hearts and our minds so that we can understand the text. Would we be faithful in how we understand it, how we interpret it, Lord? Would we cut it straight? Would we be diligent students of it? At the end of everything, your word stands above all. You have elevated it above all. 
even above your own name. To that we are thankful, and we thank you for this time together this morning. All this in the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have questions about P4C, visit our website at p4csummit.org, or you can email us at info at p4csummit.org. We hope you can join us next week on the P4C podcast as we dive into a new session from Passion for Christ 2021. May God bless you as you seek to passionately live for His glory each and every day.